never return void in our lives, but will always accomplish the purposes for which it is written. And Lord, we desire that every thought and in every intent and every purpose of yours behind your word would be accomplished in each one of our lives. And we pray that you would help us to hear something of your voice, Lord, from your word this evening to where we are in our particular place in our walk in our service relationship to you. And we pray, Lord, that every single thing that these chapters are intended to produce within a child of God all through the ages in order to live for you and be a witness for you in this world, that it would accomplish those things in our lives tonight. We thank you for the relationship that we have with you. We acknowledge, even as we have in song, the tremendous price that was paid for that to be so. Thank you for the privilege of being able to live a different kind of life. Now teach us what that life looks like for your glory, Lord, in this world and for the good of mankind. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening to you. Please be seated. And let's turn to Judges chapter 10 this evening in our journey through the scriptures. While we're finding our place there, I understand that we have a distinguished guest here. More distinguished than usual. Pat Verfurth. Pastor Pat, where are you sitting? Just where is he? Just go ahead and go ahead and stand, please. Calvary Chapel, Manteca. So those of you who um, only come here on Sunday nights, uh, this is family right here. So if you want to put your name in a hat, we might be led of the Lord to do the same thing for you next week. But Pat was a pastor for many years on staff here and uh, is uh, just celebrating really his anniversary, first year anniversary at Calvary Chapel Manteca. Thank you for, yeah, go ahead. God is faithful and gracious. And so we're just excited always to get a chance to see him again. Thank you for what you do, Pat. Okay, Judges chapter uh, 10. We're going to go through several judges this evening, and you think, oh my, are we going to be here till midnight? No, we shouldn't. Um, Jephthah, one of the judges, takes up the bulk of time, but there's two or three judges that are introduced on either side of him in the chapters that we'll look at. And we pick it up in verse 1. After Abimelech, that bramble king that we looked at last week, there arose to save Israel Tola, the next judge, judge number 6, that's been listed in the book of Judges, the son of uh, Pua, the son of Dodo, uh, a man of Issachar. He, I bet he just hated the first day of school. <laughs> a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir, in the mountains of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. Now sometimes you'll hear people look at these. We have what's known as the uh, major judges and the minor judges in the book of Judges. And um, the major judges are considered uh, those that have the most written about them. Samson, Jephthah, Gideon. And then there's these judges that are kind of encapsulated in somewhere between two and four verses. And because we don't know much about them, they're called kind of the minor judges. And uh, sometimes I've even heard them... Uh, spoken of, you know, mildly dismissively as if they really didn't do much and uh, like the other guys did and, and so there's not much to say about them. The fact of the matter is, is they uh, uh, probably not m much written about them because they didn't get in nearly the trouble that the other judges sometimes got themselves uh, into. God didn't maybe have to argue them into taking their position as a judge. It's interesting, and I think the thing that's most insightful about Tola here is uh, in verse 2 where we're told that he judged Israel for 23 years. That's, believe it or not, that's three years longer than Samson judged uh, Israel. And everybody knows all about Samson. His name is known through history all around the world, and yet we know virtually nothing about uh, him And it isn't because there isn't anything that, uh, else that we need to know. I think that he's an example of the leader, uh, the kind of person who quietly 
goes about being faithful to God's calling, and there isn't any drama associated uh, with their faithfulness to the Lord. And so Tola to me is an example of quiet, powerful leadership and quiet, uneventful leadership is a blessing to a nation. They just quietly, effectively go about their ministry, their service to the Lord. They don't need to be in the limelight. For several uh, presidential elections now, I have been willing to vote for the man or woman who would rise up as a part of their platform and say, if you elect me, I will hide myself in some office behind some closed doors and I will work quietly and diligently for four years out of the limelight and get some work done around here. If they never had another press conference, if we never knew another thing about them except all the good things that they were doing, I would be happy to vote for them. And I think a day may be coming in our in our pop culture where we will elect not only presidentially but also uh, government and state level and kinds of things and we just we look for you know who's uh, photogenic and who can really speak well and all these kinds of things and we kind of see where this is getting us a little bit last few administrations and sooner or later we're going to need to realize that we need people who are competent I'm not speaking of the same people have been incompetent but we need people who are competent people who are willing to do what's best for the country instead of did what did everybody think about me am I on the front page of all of the headlines do they really you know like me and all of that kind of stuff so I I really uh, like this whole thing where you've got leaders who are godly they're smart they're hard-working and these are the kind of judges that uh, these minor judges so often were then there's a second judge here after him rose Jair a Gileadite and he judged Israel uh, 22 years and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys they also had 30 towns so this guy rolling 30s one after another which were called uh, Hevath Jair to this day which are in the land of Gilead and Jair uh, died and was buried uh, in uh, Cameron. And so he rules now for this uh, period of 22 years, no mention of any wars. And so again, you have this uh, quiet leader. He's not having to go out to fight a war on his watch or anything like that. He can just give himself quietly to the daily affairs and, and the needs of the people of the nation. And again, uh, they're, they're so important. We tend to undervalue them again. But these guys held down the fort collectively for 45 years out of about 300 years of the period of judges, and, uh, and it was good uh, leadership. Now with these 30 sons and 30 donkeys and 30 towns, it tells us that uh, he was pretty well off, so he got a large family, able to supply each of his uh, sons with a donkey. In other words, they had wheels. And uh, they had some pretty nice wheels, too. So they had a way of getting around. They didn't have to walk everywhere. And uh, they had kind of had a car. So that was a status symbol in those days, to have a donkey to get around in. And uh, so he knew how to take care of his kids and to bless them. And, and so he did. And then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So here's another cycle of, of what the Judges is about. The children of Israel falling away from God, sinning against Him, and then beginning to bear the consequences of their sin, going into bondage to one of the neighboring nations around them, getting sick of that bondage, crying out to God again, God raising up a deliverer and delivering them, walking in freedom for a time, and then going, uh, falling back into sin again or choosing to do so. And so here they, they begin the cycle again. Then the children of Israel began, uh, again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So they're not talking about a bunch of pagans. We're talking about God's people here, and they're worshiping every false god in the world except the true and the living God. 
Sometimes I feel like that in this culture, that every god, every false god in the culture is extra protected except for the God of the Bible. And uh, so they're, they're just giving themselves to the worship of, of anything and everything uh, but the Lord, and they're hardly being discriminating at all. They're just worshiping all of the gods that everybody else around them is worshiping. And so the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. This really upset him, righteous anger. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines. So they go into bondage to the Philistines. Don't want to serve me. Want to serve the gods of the Philistines, the gods of the Ammonites. All right, find out what kind of bondage they bring you in. So he sold them into the hands of the Philistines, into the hands of the people of Ammon. And from that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. And all the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. And moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan uh, to fight against Judah, also against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, and so that Israel was severely distressed. And we're going to see in the very next verse, verse 10, they're going to finally cry out to the God, uh, to the Lord. Now, all of that's very good, but again, we, we continue to see this troubling, uh, to me, a troubling and unnecessary block of time for them to be in bondage. Again, 18 years they're in bondage to the Philistines and, uh, and the Ammonites and before they cry out to the Lord, to be delivered from the bondage. I mean, you'd think that, that in 18 months they'd be crying out. Maybe I'm just wimpy, but I, I, I tend to cry out pretty quickly once I'm in misery to the Lord. Now, the, the old saying, and we've seen it earlier in the book, that a person's brokenness is directly proportional to the time that elapses between when they commit sin and then they repent of that sin. So obviously when you're going to dig into your idolatry and disobedience to the Lord for 18 years, we're talking, of, I mean, just, we're talking about astonishing pride for a nation against the Lord. So the Lord says, all right, I'll just wait it out until you guys are just so miserable. I know someday you're going to cry out, but I want to invite any of us here tonight that if you're in week two of a rebellion against God, don't let it turn into 18 years. Just a waste. Repentance is as close as our mouth and crying out to the Lord and making things right with Him and changing our lives this evening. And so the children of Israel, they cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. And so the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines, also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites, not Maonites, Maonites, oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand and yet you have forsaken me and served other gods therefore I will deliver you no more God is saying to them listen you and I have a long history together and all the way from the time of Egypt look at how I have been a delivering God in your life Look at the misery that I have delivered you out of time and again. Look at the beauty and the glorious life that I have delivered you into time and again. My ability to deliver, my willingness to deliver, this is a historical fact between uh, you and I. So he then says in verse 14, Grow, cry out to the gods which you have chosen to worship. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And so he said, you know, in essence, you've turned away from me the, the history that you and I have uh, to, together. And he's not telling them, listen, go become a permanent worshiper of all of these false gods. But he's emphasizing to them, look at the gods that you're serving. No God is worth worshiping that can't deliver you. No God is worth being your God that leads you into bondage instead of freedom. 
Never once when they were walking with God and enjoying the blessings and the prosperity that comes with, with walking with God did they ever say, you know, cry out to the gods in the world around them, deliver us from the misery of walking with Yahweh or Jehovah. So he's just saying, look what you've cashed me in for. It's ridiculous. So he, he kind of puts them in the corner. Sometimes we do that when we're raising our kids. Put them in a little kind of timeout corner. I don't believe in only timeout corners. Sometimes they exceed timeout corners for what they've done. So don't think I'm a softy in that, that area. But he's going to make them think about it. He's going to come, he's, he's going to, they're going to turn to him and he's going to bring them back into his arms. But he wants us to learn everything we can learn from these kind of chapters in our lives. So he's going to make them think about it a little bit. And they did think about it, and the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned, that's clarity, confession of sin, do to us whatever seems best to you, only deliver us this day, we pray. So we've got a confession of sin, and then verse 16, true repentance, they turn away from their idolatry, and so they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they serve the Lord, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. I think it's a very important sentence there at the end of verse 16. Sometimes as we read the Bible, we can tend to think that the only person that our sin hurts is ourselves. And our sin does hurt us. There's great damage to our lives. But our sin, it's important to recognize, also hurts the heart of God. That's, that's the problem when you're involved in a love relationship uh, that, that when any parent can understand this, where a child takes and just blows out away from parental authority, goes out and gets involved in all kinds of sin. And the parents are just getting word of what they're doing in San Francisco or what they're doing in Modesto and who they're hanging out with and what are they doing now and all that kind of stuff. And there's that realization they are destroying their lives at the moment. And, and ultimately it's going to be a painful experience for them, but... In, in some senses, not nearly as painful as it will be for the parents. To hear that, they're connected, they love their children, and, and every word of this sin breaks their heart. And God is the same way. As we sin, as we rebel against Him, He loves us. This is a, a, a loving relationship. The Bible says that the love that I have for my children, which I, can't, I could never put into words, is that the Bible says... I'm evil as a parent compared to the love that, that God has for us and his desire to do good for us. So they're breaking his heart. And, and so the Lord was, uh, his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And then the people of Ammon, they gathered together, they encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so here's the children of Israel. They're in the middle of their repentance and they're turned back to God. And right at this moment in time, uh, the Ammonites are uh, getting together and, and they're, they're uh, wanting to engage in a war or a fight against the children of Israel. And so the children of Israel begin to look around and wonder who in the world can lead us into battle against these uh, Ammonites who want to destroy us. Chapter 11 introduces us uh, to our next judge. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor. This guy was brave. You, you, wanted a, you want a fullback like this. You want to follow a guy like this in the battle, as we'll see. I'll tell you, Jephthah's leading the battle. I'd, I'd be happy to fall into, into line in those days. So God wants us to know he was a mighty man of valor. But he's got a little baggage. But he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead, that's the name of a man, he begot Jephthah. So to be the son of a harlot, to be the son of a prostitute in those days, that carried a terrible stigma. 
And in that ancient world, I mean, we live in the United States and there's a lot of stigmas attached to a lot of things, but nothing remotely like the stigma that this kind of thing would have attached to a person in the ancient world and even in much of the modern world today. To be the son born of a, of a harlot, of a whore, I mean, that was something that, that, that would be the second thing that people would say about you after mentioning your name. That's Jephthah, by the way. And that, that, that's going to follow you all the way through, through life. Not only born out of wedlock, but born to a prostitute. Now, one of the things that we know about children is that uh, that wasn't a decision that he made. I mean, it wasn't any fault of his, but uh, again, as in much of the world today, uh, it meant he'd carry that stigma for the rest of his life. No child should be rejected based upon things outside of their control, like the circumstances of, of their birth. And we're going to see that the Lord is, uh, isn't like that. He's no respecter of persons when he chooses people to serve him, chooses people to walk with, uh, with him. He doesn't look at our outward appearance. He doesn't look at, even look at our histories. He looks at the heart, the Bible says. Remember even Samuel, when he was calling, been sent by the Lord to to call David to become, anoint him as the next king of Israel. And he saw the oldest son, you know, David's older brother. He said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. I mean, he's tall, dark, handsome, you know, an old thing. And God said, no, you're, you're choosing people the way that people choose people. He said, I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. And, uh, and he went right down through the line of all those sons and he chose David. God looked at Jephthah's heart, born of a prostitute. We're going to see the treatment he got as a result of that. God says, I see what nobody else sees. All in, nobody else can get over his history. Nobody else can get over what side of the tracks he was born on. But I look at the heart that's behind that man. Virtually every city in the United States of America, except for the ones that are really small, Every city has a section that is the good section of town and the bad section of town. The good section of town and the hard section of town. Sometimes it's a, it's a railroad tracks that cut a city in, in half. So you got it, one section is the tough side of town, the other is the more affluent side of town. And so what we have the old saying, they come from the wrong side of the tracks. Somebody coming from the tough side of town trying to date my son or daughter on the, the good side of town. So people are judged by what side of town they come in. From the north, you know, north, south, east, west, it's the same thing everywhere. And, and so here is this guy. He comes from the wrong side of life. doesn't matter what, where he comes from. He can't move away from this, this kind of stigma. And uh, maybe you, tonight, you come from the wrong, I mean, you come from the wrong side of town. You come from the wrong side of everything in life. Nobody's dealt you a fair hand. Sorry for the gambling illustration. Your whole life. That God's just going to be more of the same. And God isn't the same. God looks at the heart. He gives every single one of us the opportunity to excel in the kingdom of God. He gives all of us an equal opportunity to excel in the kingdom of God. The Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. We're born again. We all stand equally before the Lord. All have an equal opportunity to be used by Him. Now this means a lot to me because I come from the wrong side of the tracks, the town that I came in from, and the history that I have. So this means a lot to me. It's one of the reasons that I'm very, very thankful to Calvary Chapel and the Calvary Chapel movement. There's so many, I'm not putting anybody down, but there's so many denominations and all so many church structures and all that if you don't have a, a bachelor's degree, if you don't, sometimes even if you don't have a master's degree, you're never going to stand behind a box like this in a room like this. You'd never be given an opportunity. doesn't matter what call God has on your life. doesn't matter what gifting He's given you. None of that matters. You just have no chance. You know the victims of that kind of thinking in church history? Charles Spurgeon. 
D.L. Moody, Campbell Morgan, (laughs) rejected because of a lack of formal theological education. You can go on and on and fill out the list. One of the great things about Calvary Chapel, and there are other groups just like it, where they give a person, any person, a chance to just step out in what God might be calling us to do and then see what in the world God might do, no matter what our baggage or what our background. And in that way, Calvary Chapel is simply being like the Lord. So I'm thankful for it. It's like a little Jephthah in me. Don't have, uh, don't have his exact characteristics. I got a little bit of it. Gilead, here's the father of Jephthah, his, uh, his wife bore sons. And when his sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So the boys got older, they became adults, the legitimate sons of all, all the sons of the same mother. They said to this son of a harlot, they said, Get out of here, you don't have an equal place with uh, any of us. Apparently, uh, the uh, Gilead here cared enough about Jephthah when he was born to bring him into the family. He was raised within the family uh, and, and to give him a, you know, a, a proper name and a, a legal kind of status. But as soon as he became old enough, he, the rest of the boys drove him out of, uh, from his family and from his home. And so he becomes a, a social uh, outcast. Little did they realize that they were rejecting the future judge of Israel. You say, why would God allow that? Because God is going to develop character in Jephthah's life that is sometimes only developed through the cruel, unfair rejection of of other people. So notice what he does. Jephthah then fled from his brothers, and he dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah, Jephthah, and they went out raiding with him. And so he goes out into this area of Gilead and then uh, and, and these men recognize leadership ability in him right away. They banded with him for the purpose of, of uh, raiding. Now the land of Tob was a, about 13 miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. It's in what's modern day uh, Syria. It was the Wild West in the time of Judges. And so basically what you had, I mean, you've got this frontier area where it's just lawless. And you, you've got uh, Ammonites living there. You've got Jews living there. You've got conflict going on between uh, the, the different groups and all. And so it appears that Jephthah kind of became a bit of a police force for hire. In other words, if you've ever watched any of the old westerns, and here is a group comes in and they take over a town, they're all bad guys. You say, how in the world? We've got to find someone that, that's tougher than these bad guys, but they've got to be good guys. That's what Jephthah was. So if you were a Jewish person, you say, hey, these people are, are out to destroy us here. What can we do? And they say, there's a guy by the name of Jephthah. And he's tough, and he's got some pretty tough people hanging around with him, and you can hire him and bring him in, and, and he'll protect you in, in the middle of it. And so that's kind of what, what they did there, and, and, uh, uh, and that's the condition of, of the land at that time, where some real toughness and a willingness to stand up for yourself was, was required for uh, survival. Now, uh, Jephthah is, uh, you, you, I mean, you're looking at him and, and, you, and he's out there in Tob and he's doing all these things. And you say, well, it's, I guess it's a way to earn a living. Maybe that's all he's doing at the time is just earning a living. But he's doing a lot more than that. And God's at work in his, uh, in his life. And what he's learning through all of this is he's learning about military warfare. He's learning about strategy. He's learning about how to lead very strong, difficult men to lead. He's learned all this kind of stuff. No, I mean, no, no small thing to lead a group of people like uh, he, was, he was leading. You could not be a weak leader. 
and, and lead those guys. You'd have gotten completely eaten up. I think it's amazing to think about how uh, when we become Christians, we can look back and God calls us into some kind of an area of service for him and we can look back in our lives, even pre-Christian, and see how he was developing us for this all along. How many of you recognize that in some area of your life where you look back and go, man, I thought he just started working when I was born again. We look back, he's been working all along to prepare us for what it is that he was, uh, knew he was going to ultimately uh, work out in our lives. Don't ever think that what people have done to you or are doing to you is working against you. God will have the final say. God will work it together for good. He is doing things in our lives, fashioning us into a certain kind of person. He knows we're going to need to be a little bit further in his calling by allowing all of these things uh, to, to happen. You look at uh, how, uh, uh, can you name even one of Jephthah's brothers? They're all forgotten. History doesn't remember a single one of them. Everybody remembers Jephthah. God has a way of having the final say related to, to our lives. So we can't control you know, how we come into this world or how people are going to treat us and that kind of thing, but we can control allowing God to fashion us and making our lives available to Him. Now notice Jephthah here in uh, verse 4. It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. So they, they, they've declared war against Israel. You know, we read that in verse 4. We've got the, and I'm not complaining, we've got the air conditioning on, and you, you're sitting in, I think it's a pretty comfortable seat. They, got, they put a little pad up here for me to stand on, behind the pulpit. I mean, this is, this is good. And I appreciate it. I've got no lower back problems with this thing. It's just terrific. But you can, we can read the Bible and, you know, in the comfort of rooms like this. Verse 4, that's a miserable condition. You've got a whole nation of people that have declared war on you and they're intent on destroying you. So this is, this is pretty serious business. And so it was that when the people of Ammon made war against Israel, that the elders of Gilead went up to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. As soon as things got difficult, everyone immediately knew this is who we need to have lead us into battle. Oh, you just have to wait. The, the Bible says that you know, promotion doesn't come from the east, the west, the south. It, the promotion comes from the Lord. You just have to wait it out. And so here, evidently, his reputation as a person who's uh, strong and, and uh, a good leader, uh, very capable in battle, that's spread all over the world. And the, these guys are a little bit, we're going to see in a moment, they don't swallow their pride very well, but they sipped it down a little bit, enough to come out to him and offer him a job as the leader of the country. And, they, and you notice in verse 5, they don't send a delegation to go talk to him. The elders of Gilead themselves went out to Jephthah uh, to speak to him. And they said to him, come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. And so they call on him now to uh, become the leader and, and we need a leader. And, and they're, they're really actually pleading and begging for his help. I have seen this happen over and over and over again in the body of Christ, kingdom of God. And I, I'll tell you, I exhort myself, I, and I, I just speak to all of us here tonight, it is best never, ever to mistreat another person, to disrespect another person, to shun or in pride reject another person, because you know what I've seen happen over and over again? God has worked circumstances through time where the very person that has mistreated that other person is in desperate need of what that person offers in the future. And God makes us swallow our pride and then go to them and reestablish the relationship. And so he does the same thing here. God is forcing them to repent of their treatment of, of him and all of this and, uh, and, and approach 
Jephthah here in their desperate need. And the greatest example of it is Christ. Morning of his crucifixion. Crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this one to rule over us. And they reject him and they spit on him and they cast him away. And Jew and Gentile alike, but the Jews did it. Jewish religious leaders. The Bible says when Jesus comes back in his second coming, they'll accept him and they'll recognize him. Where'd you get those wounds? I got them in the house, my friends. The whole thing comes around. The Lord's faithful to do it. So his response to them, here in verse 7, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? And a reminder of the history a little bit. Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? This is a typical conversation, right? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us to fight against the people of Ammon and to be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. So he says, Why are you coming to me now, now that you're in a pinch? They completely ignore. They don't answer it. That was then, this is now. We need a ruler to rule over us and to lead us in, in battle. So that's why I say they're not very good at, at uh, confessing their wrongdoing and repenting, but it's, it's enough, apparently, for the situation. And, and so we want you to become our leader over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, this is it. He's misinformed concerning God to some degree, as we'll see in just a few minutes. But he, he has a respect for God and he has a love for God. And he knows something about God. So he mentions the Lord here. And if the Lord delivers them in, into my hands to me, shall I be your head? So they think they're just going to come in here and here's a whole group of elders, the grand poobahs of the Jews here, and, and they're going to speak to him and say, listen, we need you to be the king. And say, well, boy, what a break. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Jephthah's going to strike, he's going to strike a bargain with him. This guy's a negotiator. So, all right, what are you going to do for me here? And, and if I do lead them in and God does give the victory, will I then be your, be your leader? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not according to your words. And then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his uh, words before the Lord at Mizpah. So there's a public ceremony at Mizpah of the fact that he was made the leader of, of Israel as a judge at that time. He, this was his doing. He wanted this to be done before the Lord. Again, there's a spirituality about his life. There's a love for the Lord in, in his life. Now, Jephthah, verse 12, he sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you uh, have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? And so the first thing that Jephthah does... And it's uh, very, very interesting, is he poses a question to the king of Ammon and says, what, what is the cause of this aggression on your part? What's the cause of this invasion? This is fascinating concerning this guy because you would have thought, given kind of his background, his military background, his great bravery, his great experience, that the first thing he'd do would be to put those weapons on and say, all right, those guys want to fight, I'll give them a fight. We'll take off their heads and ask questions later. He doesn't do that. He's not that kind of a guy. Now that, that's, a good, that's a good military leader. So he wants to negotiate. He wants to dialogue with them. He wants to talk things through. If it ends up being a war, after you've done your best to avert a war, what can you do about that? But nobody wants to head into a war that everybody looks back on and says, we could have easily talked that through ahead of time. I wish more people in the body of Christ understood that. The Bible says if we have a problem with somebody else, we need to go to that person individually before we split the whole church over it. And so here is this man tremendous wisdom, tremendous character. He wants to, like, again, you find people who are experienced in war and they're not eager to go to war again. They will go to war again, but if there's a way to handle it through negotiation, 
then, then they want to avert it. Because thousands of people are going to end up dead on the, side of any, any, on the other side of any kind of war. So he wants to say, look back on it and say, I did my best here to talk this out and to make this right to see if we could just uh, do it through some kind of a discussion. So he approaches and he, he asks the, the reason for the aggression. And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah and said, here's the reason. Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, uh, here's the conditions of peace. Restore those lands peaceably uh, to us. And so, listen, you want to avoid a war? All you have to do is to give us back uh, our land. And so you stole our land, and all we're trying to do is reclaim our land. We'll call off the invasion if you'll just restore the land peaceably to us. How old are border disputes in the region of the Middle East? Thousands of years old. And we're going to go over there and fix them. I don't care who, I don't care who the president is. That gets solved when Jesus comes back. He has the authority, he has the ability to take care of that. But these disputes over borders and, and the same accusations being made against Israel and all, this stuff is as old as the oldest parts of, of the Bible. Now Jephthah listens to the report that's brought back to him. And uh, so he uh, listens to that. Let's see where we are here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, verse 14. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king uh, of the people of Ammon, and he's going to give the king now a, a history lesson. This guy's been, you know, he, he, watched some, he watched the wrong movie on the exodus out of Egypt to the promised land. Some Hollywood producer must have put it together and revised all of history. So he's going to, this guy's operating on a revisionist history, so he's going to remind him, no, let me tell you, I know the history. Let me tell you the history of how we got here, why we don't need to go to war, but why it doesn't mean that we revert this land back to you. He said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, out of the Exodus, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea, and they came to Kadesh. And then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me go through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, and he would not consent. And so Israel stayed at Kadesh. They, they asked these neighbors one after another. They were refused, and the response of Israel uh, to their peaceful refusal was a peaceful response. We were nothing but peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. And then they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab, and encamped on the other side of the Arnon, but they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to them, Please let us pass through your land into our place. Just like to cut through, won't bother you at all, but Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all of his people together and camped at Jahaz and fought against Israel, endeavored to destroy Israel while they were making their way from the bondage of Egypt into the promised land. In other words, we never attacked anyone. But when we were attacked, we rose up and we defended ourselves. That's the history, sir. Of, of our exodus. And so, uh, the, so Sihon gathered all of his people together and camped at Jahaz, fought against Israel, and the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them, and thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, 
and from the wilderness to the Jordan. And so we occupy and and possess the land today that once belonged to you simply because we defended ourselves in an attack uh, while uh, upon your land. That's the history. Now the Lord God, he, he gives uh, lesson number two in this history lesson. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, should you then possess it. And so he informs the king that we possess this land because our God, the God of Israel, has given it to us by virtue of this uh, military success. Reason number three, or clarification number three, verse 24, will you not possess whatever Chemosh, your God gives you to possess. So whatever the Lord our God, uh, ta- whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. So he said, "Listen, if you don't have any land, you ought to be talking to your God. Don't be talking to me. I got a God who gives land. I got a God who gives victory in battle. I don't have a beef with my God. You want to fight a war with me? You got to talk to your God. You got a God that can't give land. Sends him back to his God. What are you doing? You have a God that isn't able to do much for his followers. You ought to think about that. It's a little bite to the argument. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? In other words, the Moabites had, have had just as much a right to demand the land back of Israel, and uh, they've never done it. Uh, even, even Balak didn't do it. He, he acknowledged the right of Israel to have uh, the land. He wanted to curse them in order to be able to defeat them, but he recognized their right to the land. And while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Aroer and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Gentlemen, kind sir, We have been in this land for 300 years. If you had a beef, couldn't you have shown up a little bit earlier? Now, how long have we been a nation in the United States? Don't shout out, I'm just asking. Not even 300 years. Feel pretty settled here? You willing to give this back? No, it's just like, okay, I can't explain everything that's happened in American history. All I know is you were born at this time in American history, I was born at this time in American history, and you and I are not going to sort out something that happened back 300 years ago. This is our reality. Let's talk about that. (laughs) So, if some Native American person comes, knocks on my door, demands my house, I just... Listen, I, no. In a word, no. That's just simply not going to happen. So I'm not saying history's always clean, but I mean there's a lot of water under the bridge. It's a little more complicated than just showing up after now a group of people have a 300-year investment in, in that land. And so he reminds them of that. It's a little bit late now to be showing up and demanding this land. And so therefore, this is the conclusion to his reasoning, he said, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. You're on the wrong on this side of things. You're the aggressor for illegitimate reason. And may the Lord the judge, if you're going to continue to fight me, may the Lord the judge render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. So you want to go to battle? And in and, and, and the face of these facts, I'll go to battle with you and we will put, uh, trust our future into the hands of the Lord and you can see what Chemosh will do for you. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah, spoke, uh, which Jephthah sent to him. And so uh, basically the war is uh, on. Now, again, uh, Jephthah mentions uh, the Lord here over and over again in in this thing, it's just he—he's a little rough around the edges, but he really, really loves the Lord 
uh, to the degree that he, he know, you know, understands the Lord and the ways of the Lord. So the guy, the guy refuses the, the logic here and, and the, the, the case that he lays down, and now it's going to be a war. And so then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. So here's this baptism with the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament that we've seen before, that God would come upon individuals to perform you know, particular feats of, uh, of bravery and, and, and great works in the Old Testament. This upon experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the, is the right and blood-bought right of every single Christian. We get to walk in this every single day. What a privilege. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. That's going to be the reason he has victory. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mizpah, of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. So he is, he is beginning to stage his troops. And Jephthah then made a vow to the Lord, and he said to the Lord, If you will deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then I, it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house when, when I return home, first thing out of the doors of the house, that to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, that shall surely belong to the Lord. I will offer whatever comes up out of that, out of that door, you know, whether it's a, an oxen or a lamb or whatever, I will offer it up to the Lord as a burnt offering. And so uh, Jephthah here really makes a tragic, tragic, unnecessary vow uh, to the Lord and his identity really gets associated with this vow he's trying to make a deal with God you notice that first word there and that he says in verse 30 if if you will speaking to God that's his prayer and then in verse 31 first word then if then if then he's trying to strike a bargain with God here if I do this then you do this and, and so he, he's making a vow, Lord, uh, I'll do this if you do this. And, and now uh, he's, it's an attempt to bribe the Lord and, and now to get God to bless us on the basis of, of works here. And it moves it from grace. And so he's, he's trying to come under this, trying to get a, you know, a bargain with God, kind of a, a guarantee from God that... Um, you know, sometimes we, we aren't just confident in God's leading of us into a battle. And so we want a little bit more than uh, just being in his will and everything's going to turn out okay. We want to strike a bargain with God. And so we make this vow and that's the kind of thing that he made. The Bible, in the New Testament, there's no need for us to make a vow to God. We never have to say, God, um, if I do this, will you promise to do this? When you have a God who has promised to do exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think, any vow or deal that you and I could come up with is going to be less than what he has in mind. There is no need to bargain with God. Not, not with the greatness of his heart toward us. All we have to do is just hear him Obey what he tells us to do. He desires to be more than generous with us and to bless us. So when there's that temptation, all right, God, I'll do this if you do this, back off from that. Because nothing good is going to come out of that vow. All we need to say is, if the Lord wills, then this will happen today or tomorrow, as James says. And just to trust in the grace of God. I have found that God, in anything that he's ever asked me to do that involves some kind of sacrifice or some kind of risk, that by the time the whole thing was said and done, he did so much more than I could have ever dreamed or of even asking of him. And so the vow is a foolish vow that he makes here. But again, you know, he doesn't have the light that we have in the New Testament in terms of our understanding of God and in a relationship with God. So he does it, and uh, we need to at least learn from it. There's no need to, to do this. So he makes the offer, listen, you give me this victory, and then whatever comes out of my house first, when I return home, I'll offer that as a burnt offering. Now remember, a burnt offering was a offering that represented the consecration 
of the, the person that offered the offering. Well, isn't, wasn't that helpful? So what, a burnt offering, what made a burnt offering unique from all of the other Jewish offerings is that the, the burnt offering was completely consumed on the sacrifice, uh, on, on the altar, would be burned in the fire completely. So the animal would be killed, and then its entire body would be consumed on the altar in the fire. And what that represented is, God, I am fully dedicating and committing my life to you, 100%. I'm not giving you 50% and I'm taking the flanks and I'm taking the shoulder stakes and I get the horns. The ho- everything belongs to you because that's what I'm communicating. My whole heart belongs to you. My whole life belongs to you. So that's what he was uh, wanting to say. I'll offer whatever comes out first, goes to you, as just an expression of, of, of my wholehearted uh, thankfulness uh, to you. So that's the deal that he makes. And so Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands, and he defeated them from Aroer as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and went to uh, Abel uh, Keramim with a great slaughter, and thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel, crushing defeat against them. And when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels, little noisemakers, you know. She's dancing. She comes bounding out of the house. First one out of the house. Before the sheep. Before the dog. Couldn't offer a dog. So it comes bounding out. Word has doubtless gotten to her of the great victory. She can't wait for dad to get home. She comes flying out of that house, knows nothing about the vow. And, uh, and she was his only child. Only child he'd ever have, too. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her uh, coming out in this way, remembers his vow, that he tore his clothes. They tear their clothes. It was, my heart is torn. They tear their clothes as an outward representation of the sorrow. My heart is torn in half right now by what I'm seeing. And he said, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, for you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it. And so he apparently informs her of the vow at this point in time. And she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the people of Ammon. And then she had a request. So she said, Father, keep your vow. And then she had a request. Let this thing be done for me, let me, alone, uh, let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, the fact that I'll never marry with my friends. So me and my friends going. He gave her permission, said go, and he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity that she would never marry on the mountains. And so it was at the end of two months that re- she returned to her father and he carried out his vow uh, with, uh, with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went out, uh, went four day. let's see, that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. And so... The, the vow that he had made and uh, the brokenheartedness of when he sees his daughter come out. What really happened here? There are some people who believe that Jephthah actually slew his daughter and then offered her body as a burnt offering to the Lord. To me, that's simply incomprehensible. I'll tell you why in just a moment. It, to, incomprehensible to me that he would have done that and the reason that I believe that is for the following reasons. Number one, the law of Moses absolutely prohibited human sacrifice. And Jephthah has already shown that he had a certain knowledge, indeed a pretty thorough knowledge, of the history of the children of Israel that was contained in the law of Moses. So God never, he forbade over and over again... The sacrifice of children to gods, false gods, in the nations around Israel in those days, that was common. 
And God made it very clear to them, never ever is there to be any human sacrifice uh, offered uh, to me. The second reason that I don't believe that he literally offered her as a sacrifice is that the law of Moses allowed for a person who was dedicated to God by virtue of a vow to be released from that vow by offering an animal sacrifice. Well-known part of the law. Jephthah would have realized that, all right, I have, I have made a dedication that has been transferred now from an animal to a person, but the law of Moses allows me to substitute a sum of money in the sacrifice of an animal to substitute that vow. He had a way out in terms of the law of Moses. Additionally, the passage makes it very, very clear that the fulfillment of the vow involved her not knowing a man for the rest of her life. That is, that she would never become sexually involved, never be married, never have uh, children. Now, notice in verse uh, 37, as uh, she declares, let this thing be done uh, for me, let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail not my death, my impending death, but to bewail my virginity, my friends and I. And so clearly what she is understanding here is that what she is sacrificing in her father keeping this vow is that she will never marry, but she is not preparing uh, for her death. Notice also in verse 39 we're told that when Jephthah uh, carries out this particular vow, that the result of carrying out the vow was not his daughter's death, but the result was that she knew no man. And in fact, you look at verses 37, 38, and 39, they strongly support uh, this understanding of the passage. Additionally, in verse 36, uh, uh, well, I would just be repeating myself. Her request that she be given two months to go up and down the mountains of that area, bewail her virginity, again, uh, strongly points to the fact that she was being devoted to the Lord uh, in a kind of a perpetual celibacy in some way, maybe becoming kind of a, a servant, virgin-like um, for, at, the, at the house of the Lord in Shiloh. But her life was being dedicated to the, to the work of the Lord. Additionally, in verses 39 and 40, it became a custom, we're told, in Israel that the daughters of Israel would spend four days each year lamenting the, the daughter of Jephthah. There isn't any way that the nation of Israel would honor an act of human sacrifice in that way. They just simply, just simply for all of their craziness at times, that wasn't something that, that they would do. And I think finally, and perhaps most convincingly, Jephthah is listed in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith as a man of faith. It is, again, inconceivable. I'm overusing the word, but again, it's, a, it's the strongest one for me. Inconceivable that the Holy Spirit would have included him in the hall of faith if he had actually sacrificed his daughter. So it just doesn't add up any way to me. But clearly the lesson of the entire passage is against making any rash vows to the Lord or making any vows at all for us as Christians. We look at the future and we say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, if the Lord's wills, and then leave it in his hands, that's the way uh, to do it. We'll stop there tonight and uh, pick things up in uh, uh, pick up Je the rest of Jephthah's uh, account. We're not through with him. I, I happen to really like this guy. <laughs> and uh, the, the men of Ephraim are just going to bark up the wrong tree with this guy. And, um, uh, and I just always like reading uh, that, that passage where they kind of get fed their lunch a little bit. I don't like all of the death, but um, they got taught a lesson. And I, I guess I just like strong leadership, so, and he was definitely a strong leader. Related to this passage this evening, the, the lessons of, are, are, are very, very wonderful related to our life. Never, ever, ever 
allow. Where you come from in life, your history, whatever stigmas have been attached to your life, whether of somebody else's decision making or even your own decision making before you come to know the Lord, never ever allow that to limit you in terms of what you believe God to do for your life. He, he looks at the heart and there's no limit to what, what he'll do. All these things that get attached to us, not only how other people see us, but that we allow that to be, then become a part of our thinking and we become self-limiting, don't allow that to happen. This Jephthah is intended, I think, one of the strongest lessons in the whole Bible to men and women who come from the wrong side of the track, from the wrong side of life, that God gives us all an equal chance once we come to him to be great and to do great for him. The second thing I want us to leave with it relates to the first two judges that we looked at to begin. Not everyone's a Jephthah. Not everyone is a Gideon. Not everyone is a Samson. Not everyone has a Deborah or a Barak, this kind of prominence. But these judges, these men, these women that just quietly went about doing God's will, being an influence for godliness, for good, for the blessing of fellow saints, for the blessing of the world. That's powerful, powerful stuff. And sometimes we can think, I never get into the head, my name never gets into the headlines. Nobody even knows what I'm doing. Great. <laughs> Just because the culture undervalues that, don't you undervalue it. God's put you where He's put you. Don't feel bad that there's no drama surrounding your life as a result of it. Just quietly do what He's told you to do there. It's making a bigger impact than you realize. So you're called a minor judge as a result of it. We'll find out in heaven the whole story behind the minor judges. But they were a great influence uh, in, in a strategic time in the history of God's people. Don't allow anyone to minimize your importance, the importance of quiet, steady leadership in a home, in a workplace, in a school, in a city. We need this maybe more than these major judges that gobble up the headlines, and God bless them too. Let's stand together and we'll pray. The worship team comes forward. That'd be great.